Um, I too want to say that I've been much in prayer for our farmers and just trust that God will encourage you and give you the strength you need. And I know it's been a very difficult year, but uh, we've certainly been in prayer uh, for you. Uh, the PowerPoint I could not get to work this morning. I upgraded my operating system on my computer and my Bible program would not open. That was actually a few days ago and I called uh, and got a patch and it worked and now it's not working. So I don't know where that's at. Um, we'll have to work on that again this week. So I apologize. I had it all ready to go, but I couldn't get it to, to the program to reload again. So technology is a blessing and a curse. So, but today we're going to be talking, if you open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, on models for unity. And we are only going to look at one model today because um, that's all we're going to have time for. And we're going to look at the model of Christ. Um, after the model of Christ, we will look at the model of Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus. But today we want to focus on the model of Christ. So in Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, Paul writes these words. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I do find it interesting that Paul on the heels of talking about the benefits of being united with Christ and talking about the whole idea of unity in the body of Christ, why he goes to Christ. Because he does not say, well, here's seven principles, here's five secrets, here's four guides to unity. He doesn't do that. He doesn't give us any of that. What he does is he points to Jesus Christ. Notice what he says in verse 5. Your attitude in the body of Christ, he's not talking, he's talking to individuals, but he's talking corporately. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. In this passage, we see the condemnation or condescension of Christ as well as his humiliation. He humbles himself to the point of death, and this attitude of humility is to permeate the body of Christ. If this attitude of humility in Christ is embraced by God's people in the church, we will enjoy a sweet spirit of fellowship. We will enjoy a deep and dynamic love for one another and a passion to see Christ magnified in our midst. I was reminded of the song uh, that I heard growing up, and if you're under 30, you might not know this song. Sweet, sweet spirit. Listen to these words. There's a sweet, sweet spirit in this place, and I know it's the spirit of the Lord. There are sweet expressions on each face. Now I need to look and see. Sweet expressions on each face. 
and I know it's the presence of the Lord. Sweet Holy Spirit, sweet Heavenly Dove, stay right here with us, filling us with your love. And for these blessings, we lift our hearts in praise. Without a doubt, we'll know that we have been revived when we shall leave this place. So the right attitude is humility. The wrong attitude is selfish ambition and conceit. If you go back earlier in verse 3, Paul says the negative, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. I remember um, Pam and I going to an Ohio State-Penn State game number of years ago, and as we were walking into Happy Valley, which is in Pennsylvania, I had on my Ohio State paraphernalia. She was afraid they were going to kill me. Um, she's like, I don't want to be a widow, you know, widower, widow. And, um, and it, I was actually a little scared then. I'm like, how are they going to respond to me? Because um, I know people can be quite selfish when it comes to their team, right? I did live through it. And the Valley, I can say, was not too happy when the game was over. We walked out victorious. But the point is, this whole idea of selfishness, this self-centered thinking we get into. A selfish attitude grows out of self-centered thinking, lacking consideration for others, chiefly concerned with one's own personal profit or pleasure, consumed with self, self-importance, self-elevation, self-sufficiency, Self-absorption, self-serving, self-seeking, egocentric, selfish motives, devoted to caring only for oneself, primarily with one's own interests, benefits, and welfare. I like how Charles Simeon, who was a theologian who was born in the middle of the 18th century, he said this, every man that is acquainted with his own heart has seen in himself a sad mixture of motive, which he cannot but acknowledge before the heart-searching God. And consequently, he will do well to regard himself as inferior to those whom he cannot convict of any guile in comparison of what he knows to have existed and operated within his own bosom. In other words, when we look internally at our own lives and I see in my own self the mixed motives in my own heart, how can I possibly judge someone else for their motives? I see the own inconsistencies in my own life. Charles Simeon went on to say, who for one deviation which he sees in others may not discern a great many in himself. See, selfish people don't add to a relationship to help it grow. Instead, they're all about adding to their own life. Young people don't date a selfish person. It'll lead to unhealthy relationships that result in hurt, disappointment, and resentment. And if you're in a selfish marriage, I'm sad for you. If you're a selfish spouse, I hope that you will look at this passage of Scripture in the model of Christ, which will bring unity into a home, into a marriage, when we take the attitude of Christ 
and humility. Where was the first act of selfishness? It was in the heavenlies. Lucifer, remember? He wanted God to worship and serve him. He wanted to be in control of the universe and call the shots. He wanted to raise himself up. Here's what it says in Isaiah 14, 12. How are you fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn? How are you cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low? You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. Do you get the idea? Satan wanted to be above God, above everything. He says, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. He wanted to exalt himself, selfishness. But he says, but you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. And what did Satan do when he was in the garden with Adam and Eve? What did he tempt them with? Selfishness. He tempted them by saying, God is being selfish. He is withholding this tree and fruit from you. You are entitled to it. You can become like God. You can be in control. You can have a piece of the pie. And what happened to man when he tried to exalt himself? He was humbled and brought down. What happened to Satan? He wanted to exalt himself. He was brought down. Here's how Luke says it in 14.11. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. James chapter 4 verse 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore it says God opposes the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And he will exalt you. You see if there is a lack of grace in your life. It's because you lack humility. If there is a lack of grace in a church, it's because the church has been sucked into a selfish and prideful focus. The right attitude is humility. The wrong attitude is selfish ambition and vain conceit. So here's a question with the right attitude. How can I minister to those around me. What needs do they have? How can I be a source of, if you go back to verse 1 of chapter 2, how can I be a source of encouragement, comfort, fellowship, and compassion? How can I do that? By having the mind of Christ, a humble mind. This humble mind involves the will, the affections, and the conscience. Jesus was surrendered to the Father's will. Jesus did not challenge the authority of God. He did not question his assignment to take on flesh. He did not feel a sense of entitlement when he was in the garden. He said, not my will, but your will be done. It was selfless attitude. And here's what Paul is saying. This is the way that it should be among the members of the church. A selfless, humble, gracious attitude. And if that happens, 
He's saying there will be a unity and a sweet spirit and a dynamic love that will be noticed by the world. There will be harmony in the home when husband and wife possess this attitude of Christ. There will be genuine fellowship in the church when the body of Christ possesses this attitude of humility. But then Paul does something else. He goes deeper And instead of talking about the church, he talks about Christ. And he gets into a theological, this is one of the most deeply theological passages in Scripture, talking about Christ. You're like, why would he do that when he's talking about unity? Because it's all about the humility of Christ that will set the church apart. And so he gets into a theological discussion here. And I hope that you will take notice of this and that this will humble you when you realize the humility of Jesus and what he did on our behalf. If we miss this, we will miss the whole point. The whole point that Jesus was on high and he came down low. And the Bible says whoever humbles himself will what? Be exalted. And God exalted him after he humbled himself. And that's what will happen with us. God is the one who does the uplifting. God is the one who does the exalting. And so what we see here in this passage is Jesus taking steps of condescension and humiliation that are hard for us to comprehend We cannot comprehend the depth to which Jesus came from, from heaven. The highest, loftiest, most glorious place with an intimate relationship with God the Father. And he comes down to the very pit of our need to meet us where we are. Should humble us, every one of us. So let's look at this. The condensation and humiliation of Christ. In verse 6, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. The first step down is that Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So what did he do? Well, in his pre-incarnate state, before Jesus took on flesh, he was God of very God. He had all the attributes of God. He had the essence and expression of God. He was the very image of God. He was God. It says, in the beginning, in John 1, 1, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He tells us in John 10.30, I and the Father are one. This is important that we understand the deity of Christ, the divinity of Christ, because there are many religions today, and we could mention them, there are many religions today who do not see Jesus as God, and that's a problem. Jesus is God of very God. There are many religions who will not, who would deny that. Say, well, he was just a good man. He was more than a good man. He was God of very God. 
Whenever we diminish God, see, here's what's happening. We are, we are becoming into a culture of Christianity. Um, there was an article that we saw in the Decision Magazine recently, and it was talking about the progressive Christianity that is prevalent in our culture today. And here's the first step of progressive Christianity, a low view of Scripture. A low view of Scripture. And what does that do? Then we downsize the divine. We downsize God. We downplay Jesus. Jesus is God of very God. When he became flesh, he did not become less than God. He added humanity to his divinity is what he did. He says, I and the Father are one. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. In Christ, in Colossians 2.9, in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Even though he was God of very God, he says he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to be seized, something to be clutched, something to be snatched. He did not hold on to this position by force or violence. He did not have an entitlement mentality. He did not exercise his claim or his rights to this position. That's humility in the greatest sense of the word. How many times do we want this entitlement? We have this right. We have this claim. Jesus laid it down. But if we go back to the Garden of Eden, the first Adam... What did the first Adam do? He was trying to seize the wisdom of God, seize the position of God, raise himself up, self-exaltation. The second Adam, Christ, laid down his rights. For what reason, though? So he could become an offering for sin. An offering for sin. So the first step down is he did not count equality with God, something to be grasped. But then he goes on in verse 7 and he says, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. He made himself nothing. Other versions say he emptied himself. He emptied himself. He divested himself of a position he voluntarily chose not to exercise some of his divine attributes. This was self-prompted action. He was not misled or coerced into taking this position. Here's what he did. He accepted the limitations of being human. Think about that. He's God of very God, and then he, he takes on this body, and he accepts the limitations of being human. We cannot comprehend that. I cannot comprehend the humility that that would take. How many of you would be willing to give up your house? I mean, I wouldn't be quick to do that. He gave up millions times more than that. He could not be everywhere present in his body. He chose not to exercise his power. He gave up his glory in heaven. He was born in humble surroundings in a small town. His glory was hidden or concealed from man. 
And that's why he says in John 17, 5, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. In other words, he he gave up that glory in his humility. He gave up his riches in glory. He says in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich... Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. He gave up his riches. He gave up his intimate relationship with the Father. He hung on the cross and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I don't know about you, but that, that, that's a lot to give up. Because I can tell you with two boys in college... We like to hear phone calls from them, but it doesn't happen very often. And we went two weeks without talking to Brandon. And I thought, man, what in the world? Two weeks? I mean, he couldn't squeeze us into his busy schedule. I mean, we used to have these long, deep conversations when I'd pick him up at James Valley and we'd come home, say, Brandon, how was school today? Fine. (laughs) Okay. Why was it? Fine. P.E. He didn't even say we had P.E., just P.E. That's it, P.E. Well, how was basketball practice? Good. Why was it good? I don't know. (laughs) Deep conversations. (laughs) But no, seriously, you think about the deep conversations that had to exist between God the Father and Jesus the Son. He gave that up. He left heaven. Oh, he still had communion with him, but not in the same way. The distance. So he took another step down by making himself nothing, emptying himself. Let's look at the third step down. He made himself nothing, and then taking the very nature of a servant. That's the third step down. Taking the nature of a servant, his humility in serving. In John 13, the disciples come in, Jesus grabs a basin, a water basin, the one who created water, pours it into a basin wraps himself up in a towel. He gets down on his knees, the position of a slave. And he washes their feet. He was the king of the universe. And he gets down in the most humble position and he washes their feet. What an example of humility. And that's the position and that is the attitude that is to permeate the church of Jesus Christ. And he says in John 13, 15, I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. You see, a slave was legally owned by someone else. His life and purpose was determined by his master, God the Father. And his life was in submission to the Father. Father, not my will, 
but your will be done. Is that the attitude when we come into God's house with God's people? Is God not my will? Not what I want to happen. What you want to happen. What you want to do in my life. What you want to do at Bethesda Church. What you want to do in this community. God, I'm at your disposal. (laughs) That's where Jesus was. And he was willing to do that. The fourth step down, he continues to condescend. He continues to humble himself. At the end of verse 7, being made in human likeness. Or some talk about being born in human likeness. Think about that. He takes upon himself a body. In Galatians 4, 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. He became a baby. He subjected himself to parents. He subjected himself to the laws of creation. He even subjected himself to the evil ways of man. People didn't even recognize him when he was walking around. He didn't walk around with a halo over his head. He would be walking down the street with a group of people and they had no idea who he was. Because here's what it says in John 1.10. He was in the world. The world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. It did not even recognize the Son of God. He was so ordinary. Isaiah 53 says he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Even in his humanity, the Bible says he had to grow in wisdom and stature. But it also tells us that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are in his humanity, yet without sin. Jesus experienced hunger, weariness, stress, being misunderstood, rejection, mistreatment, humiliation. He experienced all of that in his humanity. Talk about humility. But he's still not all the way down. Look in verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Think about the cross. It was a Roman cross. It was the most humiliating experience a person could go through. It was the most painful and horrific form of punishment and execution ever designed by humans. It brought unimaginable shame, ridicule, and mockery. The beatings prior to the crucifixion brought out the most vicious anger and vitriol man could muster to display their utter contempt for who Jesus claimed to be. And what do we see today? People mocking God, mocking Jesus, mocking the Bible, even by their lifestyle. 
May that never be said of God's people. It tells us in Romans 8.3, God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And it wasn't just the fact that he died, but it was the way he died on a cross. And it tells us that he became obedient to death. It really should say obedient unto death because his obedience was to God, not to death. He was obedient to God to the point of dying. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. That's what Jesus did for us. John 15, 13. 1 John 3, 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. He came all the way down. His whole mission, his whole purpose in coming was to die. And the only way he could do that was to have an attitude of humility. And I think it's required in us as well. If we're going to die to ourselves, if we're going to die to our will, if we're going to die to our plans, to our dreams, it's going to take an attitude of humility. Say, God, I'm at your disposal. I want to be your vessel. I want to be your child. I want to be your ambassador. But then after he died, he was exalted. After he was humbled, God exalted him. Look what it says in verse 9. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place. He went from the pit to the pinnacle. God exalted him, and it means super exalted him, to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He restored his glory. He gives him the title Lord, signifying the authority of Jesus. Jesus becomes the object of worship. He says every knee will bow before him. Hitler's knee is going to bow to Jesus Christ. Stalin's knee is going to bow to Jesus Christ. Buddha's knee is going to bow to Jesus Christ. <laughs> Muhammad's knee is going to bow to Jesus Christ. And he says, every tongue will confess his lordship, publicly declare with praise and thanksgiving, God will be glorified through Jesus' exaltation to the glory of God the Father. But Jesus' path to glory was through the cross. Jesus' death on the cross brought glory to him and his Father. Our path to glory is the same. 
It's through the cross. He tells us in Luke 14, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And I'm amazed how many people will throw away the truth to follow their own selfish ways. The Israelites, remember, they did that which was right in their own eyes, and that's where we're at in our country, in America, in the world. Everybody wants to do that which is right in their own eyes. People will turn away, the Bible says, from doctrine to have their ears tickled and itched for what they want to hear. People don't want to hear Jesus is Lord and you need to bow to him. He is God. I would say three things in closing. One, model humility by serving others. Two, honor one another by sacrificing personal preferences. And three, pray for wisdom to restore any strained relationships. Paul gives us the greatest model for unity in the person of Jesus Christ. And the model was his humility. The Bible says God resists the proud but he gives grace to the humble. Let's bow for a word of prayer. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, let me ask you, what's your attitude? How is it with your spouse? Is there an attitude of humility? Or is it pride and selfishness? That doesn't work very well in a marriage. It doesn't work very well in a family. It doesn't work well in a church when somebody says, well, I want it to be my way. Multitude of counselors are safety. I think about the condescension of Christ his humiliation. I can't even begin to comprehend it, what he did on our behalf. If you're here today and you've never trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you have an opportunity to do that. Jesus Christ condescended for you and for me to die on a cross, not for his sin, for my sin, for your sin, he died. He took our sin, he took our punishment upon his shoulders so that we could have a personal relationship with him, be reconciled to a holy God. 
God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. If you will humble yourself and acknowledge your sinfulness before God, if we confess our sin, the Bible says he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And he will give us a new heart. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. He is a new person. The old has gone and the new has come. He will give you a new heart. The Spirit of God is tugging on your heart. Don't tell him no. Open your heart and say, God, I want to invite you in. I don't understand it all, but I believe and I know that Jesus Christ condescended in humiliation and died on a wicked cross for my sin. That I could have a personal relationship with Jesus. If that's you, would you just open your heart to him right there in your seat and ask him into your life? And then would you tell myself or someone with you that you gave your life to Jesus today? We want to help you grow, get you resources to help you grow in your walk with Christ. For those of us who are Christians, that God would help us to look at the example and the model of Christ and have that attitude. hope you've enjoyed today's message. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web by going to our website, which is BethesdaMB.org. That's Bethesda, M as in Mary, B as in boy, dot org. Or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Huron. Have a blessed day.